honestly, it could be people too, right? You have that person at work, maybe in your family, tread lightly Thanksgiving week. Maybe that person though at work, family, a neighbor, they it always just like they it's just like one more thing with that person every single time. Could you do this? Could you do that? You're you're at school and it's like, you know, the, the homework assignment, like it just needs to be a little bit better. I remember learning that like you don't use a comma the same way you use a semicolon. That was like a school thing. I was like, whoa, you're not supposed to do those the same. But there's people out there who know like that's the way it's to be. I still work with those people in my other job. This gets taxing. Just such a moment. What's even more different about Nehemiah 11 is it's not a coworker or a teacher or a neighbor or a mom or a dad or whatever. It's God himself who asks more You'll remember, if you think just over the big picture, Nehemiah, this group of people leave a foreign country, leave a foreign city, which was civilized and life was established. They'd been there for decades. They leave. They go back to a devastated Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. By this point in Nehemiah 11, they've rebuilt the wall. They've had great worship services. They've reinstituted Jewish practices like the Feast of Booths. And then in chapter 11, God says, You're almost there. Let's read what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, each lived in his own property in their cities, the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. This talks about casting lots, which is worth a little bit of reflection because it's a weird word. I mean, casting lots is pretty confusing to us. Lots, nobody really seems to know much about this, but they were small stones with markings on them, and Jews could, could cast them, could throw them. And these markings would end up arranged in a certain way, almost like how we might roll dice today, except they weren't playing games. They were trying to know what's God's will. So they'd roll these lots or cast these lots. The markings would be arranged in a certain way, and they would go, oh, we know what God's will is now. This doesn't get practiced anymore. Nobody's sure how they did it, but that's what's going on. And what ends up coming out of that is people say, we need to move to Jerusalem In chapter 11, God's asking people to do more. He says, go fill up Jerusalem. It's more. And not just anybody who wants to, but we cast these lots, they say, and one out of every 10 people goes. It turns out that there's more work than the wall, more to do than the Feast of Booths, more than leaving Persia. These Jews had to build the wall. They had to go to worship services. They had to face their enemies. They had to leave Susa and move back into Jerusalem, into Israel. One thing that's worth pointing out, because you're thinking about casting lots, and I'm going to talk a lot about volunteering this morning, because, I mean, they're, they're all volunteers. All of these Jews, like, there are no freeloaders here. They all left established lives with decades of history and moved back to a desolate, destroyed city and said, we're going to have to rebuild everything. So so everybody's volunteering for something. Nobody's just taking a free ticket, free ride, and sitting around. And nobody made them go to Jerusalem. Nobody made them leave Persia. Nobody made them rebuild the walls. In chapter 11, though, these volunteers go above and beyond 
all that other stuff is kind of like a false summit, kind of like running into that person and saying, I have to do one more thing. And God's like, yes, one more thing. For me, chapter 11 also really drives home a big picture about massive projects. Massive projects take lots and lots and lots of work. And they usually have different phases or different stages or they go on and on and on. You think back over this book, right? I mean, as the book starts, Jerusalem is devastated, but nobody's doing anything about it. Some people were living there, but nobody's doing anything about it. And then Nehemiah and a group of others come back and they start building the wall and they start recreating the spiritual practices that should have defined them right before the Babylonian destruction. God is with them, God is kind to them, God's helping them along the way, and eventually the wall builders become worshipers. They finish building the wall and they gather and they celebrate and they praise and they do the Feast of Booths. There's a helpful back and forth in Nehemiah between practical realities and what I'll call spiritual realities. They're building the wall, then they're worshiping. They're doing the Feast of Booths and then God says, somebody's gotta move into Jerusalem, this place is devastated, we gotta, like, you gotta actually live in the city. We need you back. And then they're back, and they're praising the Lord, and they're trusting God, and they're repenting of sin. And all along, we've got to accept a tough fact. God's work is a lot of work. God's work doesn't get done at once. There's people to motivate. There's walls to build. There's gates to hang. There's doors to keep up. There's enemies to face. There's political scheming going on. There's worship services, all this stuff. And honestly, Nehemiah doesn't even record everything, right? Where did they get their clothes? Where's the medical care? Who was growing the crops? I mean, there's all these unknowns going on. But Nehemiah and the Jews do what they can, and they walk with God. At times, in my 20s, you remember those? Some of you are living them, of course. Some of you are looking forward to them. Some of you need to remember them. I was compulsive with responsibilities. I wanted to get things done. I can't really, I mean, it's not worth going into all the reasons why, but I was just this person who was like, I got my task list every day, and the more that was on it and the more got done, I just loved it. And I was like, everything must get done. Everything. And now some of it was fear, some of it was like hyper-responsible behavior for whatever reason. Suddenly, sometimes, I, though, I'm reminded of this phrase, like, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> Pulling all-nighters and pushing myself beyond my limits is a distant memory. But every once in a while, I still have these inner urges, must get it done. It's like this pounding voice in my head. And sometimes I listen to that urge and I stay up late or get up super early or whatever. I must get it done, and I do. But this week, I was also talking with Tori and Emilio and Charlene and our other staff here. And we were having this meeting, and I made my, on one particular night, I told them, I made myself go to bed at a decent hour. I was like, I am making my, and there's all the unfinished stuff, right? You know, just whatever. I mean, my mind, but I'm like, must go to bed. <laughs> must go to bed. I had to fight all these mindsets and all these attitudes and say, all that unfinished business that triggers my fear and makes me just like, I got to let it all go. And it was a good choice. God wants us to rest we actually are human. God is the one who never sleeps, never gets tired, never stops working. Now, why am I telling you about my sleep habits? Because you're not done yet. And you're not God. Some of you are like, whew, boy, glad I came this morning to get told that obvious statement. Been, you know, what a shocker. Here's what I'm getting at. You do your job and God does his. For the Jews, they said, Stack that stone, till that field, 
hang that gate, build that wall, set up the Feast of Booths and do the whole worship piece that goes along with that. They did all these things with confidence that God was doing his big job. You can imagine it this way. It's like their work is with a little w, lowercase w. His work is with a capital W. Volunteers for God's building projects, that's what these people are. Volunteers for God's building projects, even those who go above and beyond and say, we're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Volunteers for God always end up rejoicing. You'll see the full reason why I say that later when we get to chapter 12, but it's worth mentioning now. And I want to say to you that for those of you who have got something that's beyond your control or something that feels too big, like rebuild Jerusalem, I just want to encourage you, try to accept that that spot you're in is the place God has you. See if you can accept that. I have situations in my life, they're not my fault. <laughs> they're not my choice, right? I've got mine. These things aren't the result of my actions, and yet here I am in the middle of it. And I bet you have yours too. These are the situations, the challenges, the realities where you get to trust God is building something. You get to trust God now and praise God later. And we'll get there in chapter 12. We're doing 11 and 12 this morning, and we're going to finish on time, I promise. But we're going to get to there because this, this reality is that you have a role in God's building project. And part of that is accepting where you are now and knowing I'll rejoice later. I'll praise him later. As a Christian, you signed up for the general gospel adventure. I hope that's not a surprise. Hopefully people were semi-careful to tell you, like, he's going to change your whole life. This is not like a ticket to Six Flags, like a one-day, like, great adventure. This is like something else, okay? If you need that unpacked, we'll meet afterwards. But this is a general gospel adventure with Christ. You may not know what you've gone through until after you go through it. You may not know what's coming. Neither do I. But being a Christian means committing to God's will getting done on earth as it is in heaven. And one time a pastor told me life is a gift and a test and a trust. And I've always held on to that. God has trusted us with something. God sometimes allows tests in our life. And God is also always giving us life. You can accept your role in God's grand endeavor with confidence in his power and in his plan. Volunteers for God's building projects always end up rejoicing. What is now a pain will someday be praise for you. If you're being obedient, you're not wasting your life. If you're doing what God wants done, you'll be glad about it someday. There will be celebration and praise and rejoicing. So you can even rejoice by faith now. It's a faith act, but you can rejoice by faith now. I'd like to give you an example of somebody from another time and place, very different than Nehemiah. He was doing his little W work, little W work. We think a lot of him, his name's, we call him the Apostle Paul. He was a Jew. Long story short, he thought he was really being faithful to God and he was going down the road and God said, you've got your life completely wrong. You're my enemy, but you've got a chance to turn it around. And Saul listened he went through some blindness. He went through a lot of adjustment. He had to get his whole life literally changed, but it did happen. This is all 500 years after the life of Nehemiah. Because of that, Paul became convinced of God's goodness, convinced that what had shifted his entire life was something everyone must hear. He's one of these like sold out people, you know, he just 
gives it all up, goes on the road. He's on foot. He's on boats. He's on horses. He's on donkeys. He's talking to Jews. He's talking to Gentiles. He's all over the place. Your Bible, if you have a paper Bible still, or you can Google it, you know, like Paul's journeys, you'll see this map. And he went so many places so many times that in my Bible, it's like, well, we've got to do the red arrow, which goes like this, and the blue arrow, which is like that, and we've got a green arrow like that. It took me like, you know, 15 years of following Christ just to get the map. But he was all over the place doing so much for God because he believed that people needed to know. And along the way, he started a church in Corinth. And he left after a long time with them, after the church got going, he left. He goes on to keep doing his thing. But he writes them a letter. And in chapter 3 of that letter, he says these words, telling them, trying to keep their faith going, trying to keep the love and the connection between them. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Paul says, I'm working with a little W. I mean, he really did actions, but God is doing something with a big W. Paul had to plant churches. Paul had to do his part. The gospel does not arrive in the mailbox. Nehemiah had to do his part. That wall is not going to build itself. God weaves your little W into his big W work. And take heart because of this. Your mistakes, your imperfections, they can't prevent his accomplishments. It's not as if he says, oh, I've been trying so hard, but I didn't get it right this time. Oh, what am I going to do? No, 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 no. He's been doing this all along. Abraham, you go find anybody you want. Second encouragement, stay humble. Your talents, your abilities, the hard work you do, can't accomplish God's work without him. It's still a little W, so we got to stay humble. His awesome plans require God-sized amounts of wisdom and power and action from him. So God rightly asks these people, do some more. <laughs> Move one more time and fill up Jerusalem. And we don't see them saying, wait a minute, leaving Susa wasn't enough? Come on, God, building a wall with no ace hardware wasn't enough? <laughs> Living like we don't even have the, you know, I mean, the whole, like all our villages are destroyed. Now God says, I want you to move up to Jerusalem, which for some of them, just to be clear, means that they don't get to live on the plot of ground promised to them when their ancestors left Egypt. Like all of this was worked out in the book of Joshua. Every tribe, every family had like land given to them by God to live. And God's saying, I know that's what I promised you then, but I'm asking you to give that up and come to Jerusalem. I know you came back from Susa. I know you already did so much, but I'm saying do a little bit more. And it means going to the first place the enemies will attack, Jerusalem, the capital. It's where they would go to attack it first. The city's in shambles. They don't even have Dunkin' Donuts like they used to. So why would these people accept God's will? Well, verse 1 says Jerusalem is the holy city. It's the place where God made his name to dwell. That's what Isaiah 48 says. This is the place. And you can go back and read all the different times when God showed up for the first time in Jerusalem. But these people said this is where God dwells. So I'll go live there. Yes, I have to give up my inheritance. Yes, I've got to do one more thing, but I get to live in the place and rebuild the place where God said he would make his name dwell. When I was a kid growing up, there was this TV show called The Jeffersons. Remember that? I don't remember like a lot of the episodes or whatever, but I loved that song and I was listening to it this week. That opening song, 
It says, we're moving on up, moving on up. I'm not a great singer. To the east side, that's right. Moving on up to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Some of you know it. You can sing with me. Moving on up. I need an echo. Like the, the song has like a chorus. Nobody's, where's my chorus at? I don't get a chorus. Moving on up. We finally got a piece of the pie. That's right. Listen, when Christians accept Christ's work on the cross, they get a piece of the pie. They get a deluxe apartment in the sky. A little bit better, frankly. Jesus called it a mansion, but I'm not going to argue with the Jeffersons this morning. When Christians volunteer, they're carrying on an old family tradition. Did you know that humans have always been central to God's building projects? Always. Before sin entered the world, God said, Adam, I want you to go name the animals. It's too big a job for you. I'm going to make you a helper. Adam and Eve, this is, you got a job to do. you got work to do. Sin enters the world, things go wrong, but it didn't stop God's desire for human partners. He didn't say, well, now what? He said, Noah, I got some instructions for you. Abraham, I got some instructions for you. Moses, Saul, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you can think of all the other people you want, right? Gideon, like Emilio talked about a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago. Noah and Abraham trust God despite Satan's resistance, and God's plan moves forward. The Egyptians oppress God's people, but they trust him, and they obey, and they get the powerful exodus, and they go, and God's plan moves forward. They wander in the wilderness, and they struggle, and they get attacked, and they have issues, and they fail God in different ways and make the golden calf and all the rest, but they keep going, and God's plan keeps advancing. Even when their disobedience destroyed the holy city and Babylon comes in, God keeps working. It's about as dark as it gets. God's people have been unfaithful. The whole nation gets destroyed. The city gets destroyed. Seems like it's over. But God preserves his people. God advances his kingdom through faithful people. God makes a way through people who trust and who obey. The best response in your dark moments is loyalty to a faithful God. And we see it again in Nehemiah. We talked about great is his faithfulness to us. We get to be faithful to him too. He raises up faithful people in Nehemiah who volunteer to go back and rebuild the holy city. What's something you can volunteer for? And I don't mean volunteer like go to a nonprofit and sign the waiver and like get on their list and like they get the t-shirt and the name tag. You know what I mean? We had some guys come by the church because the front door into the building wasn't like, you know, closing right or something. They just like showed up and like, you know, greased it or oiled it or whatever. They did something, got the door fixed. The, the, there's a group of people who've gathered with Charlie and they wanted to start learning how to grow in their faith, but also how to give away their faith. Well, they found out about an opportunity today to go to a church in another town that's having a big Thanksgiving dinner. And so it's kind of like week two, you know, we could be like reading the Bible upstairs, but we're just going to go. <laughs> we're just going to go see what happens and sit at a table with total strangers and maybe the Holy Spirit will give us some conversations. That's the sort of volunteer. It doesn't need a name tag. I mean, if you get a name tag, great. You get the T-shirt. You got the logo. Hey, that's awesome. You know, fine. Sign the form. Get the waiver. Receive the monthly emails. All that. Great. Do the whole official thing if you want. I'm just saying, how can you respond to God and say, I'll do that. I'll step up for that. He'd like that done. I'll contribute to that. Despite the volunteering of Nehemiah and many, many others, this book ends on a mixed or an imperfect note. We'll finish that up next week, but... Basically, these people struggle to exercise perfect loyalty, and it's kind of a sad moment. And as I, as I encourage you to go volunteer, I'm touching on this because 
these kind of disappointments, these kind of endings that don't go well, might feel like something you've tried before. Didn't go so well. I'm disappointed if, if, you might even say, like, if I'm honest about myself, I'm disappointed in how I acted or what I did or what I said. But it's here, right there, at our fear or our struggle or our imperfection that we discover the greatest surprise. Don't miss this. We're finally at chapter 12. I skipped a lot of chapter 11 because a lot of it was names. You're welcome to do that. It is God's word, but it's a lot of names in it enabled me to just say these people are volunteers. And in chapter 12, the names briefly pause. And verse 1 says, Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Saraiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, and it goes on and on and on. I pause here at that one name, Shealtiel. And I pause here as we're thinking about discouraging moments when you might sign up for something or have done something, have stepped up, and it didn't go well. This man, Shealtiel, who's mentioned in chapter 12, verse 1, hundreds of years later, his name comes up again. In Matthew chapter 1, Romans are controlling the very same Jerusalem that's getting rebuilt right now. They run it politically. They run it economically. They allow the Jews to have cultural and religious freedom, but the Romans are pretty much running the show. And at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, it says, After the deportation to Babylon... That's before Nehemiah's time. Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel. Now skip down several lines in Matthew 1 if you're reading along. You get to the end of several names, and it says, And Matan, the the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So Shealtiel, the guy in Nehemiah 11, ends up in Matthew 1, connected to the people who brought Jesus about. There's imperfect people all over this book, or all the scrolls that you can imagine from Genesis to Revelation as you thumb up and up and up and up. There have been imperfect but loyal people throughout the scriptures. And what of this Messiah? Well, he's the faithful one who is perfect. He's the faithful one who was holy as God is holy, loyal to God in the darkest moments. There have been imperfect but loyal people, but there's never been someone who is perfect and loyal. Never somebody like this. Hebrews 5.8 says, Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That's Jesus. And ever since his atoning death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, we can walk in that gospel adventure I talked about. Our life can become this transforming, surprising, amazing, and risky, imperfect adventure of co-laboring with God. 2 Corinthians 5 clarifies that adventure. Paul, same, same Paul as before, told that, those Corinthians in this different letter, we are ambassadors of God, as though God were making an appeal through us. They've got this identity, we are ambassadors of God, and it's like he's talking through us to other people. That's how he saw that adventure. When the people in Nehemiah 11 volunteered to fill up Jerusalem, when Shealtiel and all those other names said, we'll go back, we'll step up, we'll do more. we, We won't stop at the wall, we won't stop at the feast, we won't stop at worship services, we won't stop at the firewood that had to be chopped and the gardens that had to be planted and all the rest. 
when those people volunteered to fill up Jerusalem, it points forward to our moment. Will we volunteer to fill up heaven? Will we be ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us? Will we get out of our normal trajectory? Because remember, these Jews had every you know, divine or spiritual right to say, hey, I'm moving to Bethlehem, Ephraim, Manasseh. I'm moving to those cities because that was God's land to me. I've got the ancestry to prove it. We got the records. We kept the names. This is the land given to us in the book back when Joshua and Moses walked the earth. That's our spot. We can just claim it. But they turned their back on that. And they said, we're going to do more because God says it's a new time. It's time to do something else. There are many wonderful volunteers here, and I'm super grateful for it. You volunteer inside the building. You volunteer on the building. You volunteer for the ministries. Many of you volunteer outside of the church with people who are far from him. We have many wonderful volunteers, and people have a chance at heaven because of you, because of that volunteering, that stepping up. And I think those of you who've ever volunteered for anything, you know why people do more. It's the movement of our heart toward a need. We just see some need and we just feel like we should fill it. We just, we're just like, I should do something about that. So we do. That's, that's one reason people volunteer. Another reason people volunteer is let me be part of something bigger. This can happen with military service or some kind of service in other ways. But people say, I want to be part of something bigger. My life feels small. My life feels insignificant. I'm going nowhere. And then along comes the opportunity to join some huge force or some global culture or be part of some big movement. They volunteer for it. They saw a chance to be part of something bigger. And it's no different with God. These Jews volunteer because they can see something significant. They look around and they say, Jerusalem used to be incredible. This is the city where God made his name to dwell. And they know their Old Testament. They remember Isaiah 48 in their head, but they're not saying, well, that was then and this is now and it's just rubble. No, they think God can do it again. God could do something new. God could do something great. They volunteer. And in the process, they realize, I'm volunteering. I'm stepping up for the best assignment ever, the work God wants done on the earth. Let's finish up chapter 12 and land this plane. Verse 27 skipping several, several verses down. The Hebrews are back at the wall in verse 27. Verse 27, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem. I'm going to pause right there. I just want to explain what's happening. You may you know, get more of a sense if you go home and read it, but what's happening is they gather all the Jews. That's easy enough to understand. They're back at the wall. And what Nehemiah does is he divides them into two groups. He gives each group some Levites and some priests and some other religious leaders. And one group heads right or counterclockwise on the wall that goes around the city. And the other group heads to the left, going clockwise on the wall around the city. And so you've got two groups of people full of Levites and priests, and they're going around the walls. There were choirs, there were priests, and you skip down to verse 42 and 43. You've got these groups going around, like I'm saying. The end of verse 42 says, And the singers sang, 
I'm done, by the way. Today I've done all the singing I'm going to do. Verse 42, the singers, though, they sang with Jezrehiah, their leader. And verse 43 says, on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. The celebratory people on the walls are the opposite of the Babylonian warriors. We didn't read this passage, but many, many years before, the Babylonians showed up with their army. They stood around the original walls, and they said, we're going to destroy you. I'm paraphrasing. They said, we're going to destroy you. We're going to defeat everything here. We're going to take all your money. Not one stone will be left on another. Like We're going to shatter this city and shatter your country. Here they are decades later in the power of God through their own obedience and their willingness to step up, marching around on new walls, praising God, singing songs, celebrating. See those generals from Babylon, those big shots who stood on the wall and said, let's talk about our power, had no idea just how powerful God was. They, they walked in the faith of their own strength, but given enough time, God's people with faith in him said, where are those Babylonian warriors now? Dead and gone. <laughs> I mean, probably dead and gone, but at best, like if, they, if those warriors had like somehow survived the next 70 years of their life, they're not marching anymore. But God's people are marching. God's people are praising. God's people are singing. God's people are celebrating. When God is the builder and people agree to be part of his work, the praise will always come back. Jerusalem had been silent, you might say, for decades. There was not the temple, not the priests, not the, none of that. It'd been, it had been silent for a long time. But the praise comes back. Worship will always outlast war. There may be people standing on the edges of your life, trying to get their voice in your ears, standing on the walls of your life. I'm being metaphorical. They might be standing around you at work, at home, wherever, and they're saying, let me tell you what's true. Let me talk about my power. Let me talk about how great I am. Let me talk about how wrong you are. And Satan loves that. He's an accuser. He wants to be that voice in your saying, you can't trust. You can't do good. You can't have a bright future. Darkness will always win, right? Just beat and beat and beat and beat the message home. And maybe they're right for a little bit of time. Maybe for a little bit of time. The Babylonians were right for a little bit of time. But guess what? God's people returned from defeat. They didn't quit trusting. They didn't quit believing. And they didn't quit obeying. And one day they marched around those walls. And they said, we rebuilt them. We're praising God on them. We have new life. We have a new start. Jerusalem's coming back from the dead. God is making it happen. They end up back on the wall. They end up again as worshipers. Volunteers for God always end up rejoicing. What's something that you can volunteer for? What's something that you can step up for? What's a spot this week where you'll see a moment, I could do some rebuilding right there. I could do some encouraging right there. I could fill up heaven right there. Maybe a conversation. Keep your eyes open this week. Opportunities to step up for God will be all around you. Do you know of Billy Mills? Anybody know who Billy Mills is? Me either. I didn't either until this week. I stumbled across this story. Billy Mills was an Oglala Lakota athlete. Grew up on a reservation, the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And 
he really just kind of lived a normal life on a reservation in South Dakota, but he started to discover in high school, I can run, and I can run really well. And fast forwarding the whole story, he ends up in the 1964 Olympics, which were in Tokyo. All the way from South Dakota to Tokyo, he's running in the Olympics in the 10,000 meters event. What everybody said though, all the pundits and the professionals and the people who knew running said, Billy Mills won't win. He's not even a contender. Because there were others who were. There were other people, Ron Clark was one of them, Muhammad Gamudi. They'd been winning races. They'd been winning the 10,000. They'd been winning longer distances. They'd been winning shorter distances. Ron Clark, Muhammad Gamudi, these were the guys. Billy Mills, nice for some kid from South Dakota to make it to the Tokyo Olympics, but that's about it. Here comes the last lap of the race, though. They're running around, you know, 10,000 meters is a lot. Several miles, they're running around. It's a lot to most of us. Maybe some of you are like, eh. But for most of us, he's running around last lap of the race. Ron Clark is in the front, which everybody expected. Muhammad Gamudi's in second, which nobody's surprised by. But Billy Mills is third. And he comes around the last turn. He's running, which I'm not going to imitate, but he's running. He comes around the last turn. And in his mind, he's saying to himself, one more try, one more try, one more try. But as he's leaving that last turn, he ends up having this moment where in his mind, he tells everyone, I can win. He realized as he hit the home stretch, I can win, I can win, I can win. So in his brain, his heart's pumping, his arms are pounding. He says, I can win, I can win, I can win. I don't know what challenges you have. I don't know what opportunities you're going to have this week. I don't know if you'll step up or not. Our community has many needs. Our church has several opportunities. I won't be surprised if the Holy Spirit gets your attention this week. Here's what I do know. You're coming around a turn. You might be discouraged. You might be tired. There might not even be a voice in your head. <laughs> you might, you, you know, we like to think that our voice in our heads would say, one more try, one more try, one more try. But sometimes they say, pull the covers over your head. Silence your alarm clock. Yell at that coworker. Don't do your homework. Who cares? But God, if we'll let him, can take us from one more try and the blanket over our head and all the other things that we want to do to all out rejoicing and praise. You may not be celebrating yet. You may not even think it's possible. But the work you're doing will someday bring you to a place where you can stand and praise God. Volunteers for God's project always end up rejoicing. And if you're like Billy Mills and you're running the race and you're in first place, but you're in third place and you're feeling pretty good and you're following Jesus and you're saying one more try, one more try, one more try, he's ready to say, yeah, one more try, one more try. And the day will come when you say he has won. He has won. You have to run, but the day's coming when you keep doing one more try, one more try, one more try, and your lips are going to say, he is one, he is one, he is one. Let's pray. Jesus, we are going to, we're going to rejoice in faith. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and great is your faithfulness to us. You're the light in our darkness. You're the city on our hill. And you do ask us to do more, even if we've already done a lot. 
And there's a lot of us who feel like we've run 9,877 meters, but the race is 10,000 meters long. Help us keep our hope up. Help us keep our faith up. Help us say one more try. And help us most of all say that when we volunteer, when we step up, when we step out, we can rest in confidence that we'll someday be marching with a rejoicing spirit, singing praises, aware that worship always outlasts the wars of this world and the wounds of this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray with absolute hope and gratefulness. Amen.